Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, folks, looking at Bitcoin once again, it is up 5% today, called about $2,450 to the green side, putting it just over $51,000 per coin. Let's get a sense of what's going on with Bitcoin and all things crypto. We are fortunate to welcome our next guest, Meltem Demirs, Chief Strategy Officer for CoinShares Group. They have about $4 billion in assets under management. Matt, uh, what do you think is driving your I, I, my, actually, my I, I can't Bitcoin. wait to get her on the line because <laughs> I have so many questions. One of the products that CoinShare offers is an ETP, an exchange-traded product. And of course, there haven't been any ETFs yet for buying Bitcoin. And I think, you know, why is that? People, it's just why, why, why is that? They just haven't been allowed by regulators okay. yet. You know, the Winklevi were trying to get yep. one out there. And there are a number of um, really reputable people working to get uh, to get an ETF out there. Um, one of the main problems, Paul, is that when you go and buy something like Bitcoin that you don't understand in the first place and you have to figure out where to put it in the wallet, then inevitably as I did, you lose your password, and then it's just lost forever. It's terrifying. So (laughs) I'd rather be able to buy an ETF, or um, they sell an ETP, and I wonder what it is. It's apparently a physically-backed ETP. All right, we have Meltem back with her. Meltem Demirs, Chief Strategy Officer for CoinShares Group. Meltem, thanks so much for joining us. I'd love to just get your thoughts initially here on what's driving Bitcoin at $51,000. Hey, guys. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Look, what's driving Bitcoin is what's driving, I think, all assets in the macro market more broadly. A lot of dry powder on the sidelines, over $5 of cash, higher record savings, um, and we're seeing asset prices going up across the board. Bitcoin is not immune to that. So I think the macro environment is definitely driving some of the inflows into Bitcoin. But more than anything else, over the last six months, we have seen the sentiment and demand for Bitcoin shift dramatically. We have corporate treasurers and renowned fund managers, Bridgewater, BlackRock, all of the world's largest asset managers now talking about and allocating to Bitcoin. So overall, really the way I think about it is sentiment, more ebullient, more bullish than ever. Sentiment translates into demand. There is more demand than ever. Bitcoin has a limited supply, um, only 18 and a half million in circulation today. Supplies capped at 21 million. What mm. happens when you have something rare that there's a lot of demand for? As demand goes up, price goes up. And then the last thing I'll just mention from a market structure perspective, we're seeing record inflows week after week into structured products. Last week alone, $350 million. First two months of this year, I should say first month and a half, we're only halfway into February, over $2 billion of inflows compared to $7 billion for the entirety of last year. So Milton. there's just a yeah, I, I want to ask you about one of those. So I was looking at uh, your exchange traded product. You've got a physically backed ETP that offers exposure to Bitcoin. So what does that mean? Does that mean you hold Bitcoin basically in cold storage for me if I buy the ETP? Exactly. And more than that, we are the world's first asset manager 
to actually give you a certified attestation from Armanino LLP, one of the world's largest audit firms, every 30 minutes, our blockchain wallet and confirm that that Bitcoin is there. You can check that um, on our website uh, as well. So we are the first ones to provide a blockchain-based attestation where you can actually see we hold the Bitcoin we say we do, which is pretty cool. All right. So, Meltem, it was a big news when Elon Musk and Tesla, they put a billion five of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. When will we see a G20 economy embrace Bitcoin? <laughs> you know what? I think by the end of this year, it will happen. Never. Uh, the writing is all, you can you can print that. That's fit to print. I predict by the end of this year, it will happen. Look, at the end of the day, um, I think there are a lot of jurisdictions right now that are competing for talent and for business. You look at the exodus of financial services firms from New York. New York is not a friendly state for finance or for cryptocurrency for that matter. So businesses are going to go to jurisdictions where they are welcomed. And certainly as we look at the economic turmoil um, that's resulting from this this pandemic, the crypto industry, the growing industry contributes billions of dollars in tax revenue, um, creates a lot of jobs. So I would not be surprised if one country, one G20 economy, uh, really tries to make itself appealing to crypto entrepreneurs who are dealing with an increasingly challenging regulatory environment. Got a target for us? Where do you think Bitcoin's going into 2021? Uh, you know, I say uh, name a price, but no date or name a date and no price. Look, here's what I'll say. I have a hat that's been made for me that says Bitcoin 100K, and I expect I'll be wearing that hat for the end of this year. <laughs> wow, very good. What's the biggest risk to, to Bitcoin, Meltem? It's had such a great run. What's the biggest risk? 30 seconds. Biggest risk, honestly, I think um, cyclicality, right? So we're in an, a, a bullish, a buoyant market cycle right now. There is a cyclical trend in Bitcoin and a secular trend. These cyclical trends, I think, can be challenging to confidence, uh, particularly investor confidence. So I think the thing we're really looking for okay. is the, the futures curve and um trader sentiment that's really going to drive pricing hey meltem thanks so much for joining us as always we love to get your thoughts on all things crypto meltem demirs chief strategy officer for CoinShare group u.s retail sales they surged in january by the most in seven months beating all estimates so really just some strong numbers showing that the consumer at least in january was quite active let's break down those numbers see what's behind them we can do that with craig johnson He's the president of Customer Growth Partners, joining us on the phone from Connecticut. Craig, thanks so much for joining us here. You look at the numbers today, much better than expected. What do you think are the real drivers behind the consumer here? Well, I guess there's a, a number of drivers. We weren't surprised, frankly. We, we just issued our annual forecast for retail um, 10 days or so ago, and we called for growth of 8.1% year over year. And that's exceptional growth, the strongest yeah. uh, this century. Um, it, but if you look at the drivers behind it, you got to start with personal income. Personal income has been rising. Uh, job growth has been decent, not great. But over the last you know six, six months plus, it's been strong. Um, and uh, last, but the other factor is, is that the amount of personal savings that people have, households have on the balance sheet is exceptional. Uh, a year ago it was about 1.2 trillion. Now it's doubled to 2.4 trillion. So that's an, an incremental 1.2 trillion dollars in dry powder available for spending. 
so these are some of the factors. There are other things that go into I, it, you know, that people feel better about vaccinations and so forth. Yep. Those are the factor, key factors. I, I think it bears repeating. Your forecast bears repeating. You expect an 8.1% growth annually in retail sales. And this is not including cars, gas, restaurants. Um, That is huge. And as you said, the biggest this century, where do you think consumers are going to spend that money? What are they going to buy? The uh, Well, it's broad-based across categories, but the strongest growing categories, first of all, anything associated with the home, home improvement, home furnishings, uh, uh, et cetera. Uh, uh, the online side of it is going to grow about 20% year over year. Uh, again, very strong growth. And with this January, it was 22% year over year. Uh, so that's a, that's a major category. Um, uh, personal care, health and personal care is a growing category. That's going to uh, rise. And uh, uh, the other factor that comes into, into it is it's a smaller category, but very strong. That's sporting goods. This has been a stellar year for sporting goods. Anything associated with the outdoors, outdoor living has been strong. Craig, how much of that, of your 8.1% annual forecast, is predicated upon additional fiscal stimulus? Um, uh, really, m- only modestly. We're assuming that there's going to be, first of all, there's existing uh, uh, um, in- incremental unemployment benefits, et cetera, already in the system. And we're anticipating some increase but only a modest increase, and we aren't assuming it has to be the full, you know, what 1.9, you know, trillion dollars. Uh, it just even a fraction of that would is included in our forecast. Uh, most of the growth that we're seeing comes from the basics, in other words, job growth, and then income growth that goes along with job growth, uh, and that's the key factor. Along with this, this uh, again, the um, uh, uh, buoyant. The, buoyant factor of uh, having uh, 1.2 trillion dollars extra dry powder available to spend those are the those are the real key drivers are you worried about rates at all I mean if people are going to spend money um, and that's going to boost prices you, you'd assume if demand um, goes up and not as you know more than supply does does the fed then eventually have to go to neutral and even thinking about shifting into drive Um. We're anticipating, we're already beginning to see some uh, uh, um, uh, increases in pricing. Obviously, in, in, the, in the energy sector, that started to tick up uh, very strongly over, over recent uh, uh, days and weeks. Uh, and home-related things, in other words, price of lumber has gone up. So we are going to see some inflation coming into the mix. We don't anticipate it that it's going to be sufficient enough. To, to be, you know, like the olden days of, you know, the early 1980s, Any, anything, nothing near that. But we do anticipate it's going to tick up a little bit. But we're we're not, you know, the predicting Fed uh, uh, decisions is above above my pay grade. Uh, but we do anticipate some inflation creeping into, into the uh, mix. Craig, what's the biggest risk to your retail sales forecast this year? The biggest risk is if job growth drops off. Again, job growth and personal income growth, that's, that's, that's the predetermined factor of retail sales and really of all consumer spending. Uh, and uh, job growth has been a little flattish over the last month or two, strong for the last six or eight months, but, but, but a little bit flattish the last month or two. And if that somehow takes a real downturn rather than steadily improving, that would be the biggest factor. And so that's that's something we're keeping our eyes out on. But there's nothing on the horizon 
that 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 says job growth is suddenly going to start to drive uh, uh, dry up. You know, hopefully it'll continue, and there won't be the kind of shocks that will. Uh, that will trigger uh, any kind of major job losses. And that would be the biggest risk. Craig Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts and sharing your 2021 retail sales forecast with us on the back of a very strong retail sales number for January. Craig Johnson, he's the president of Customer Growth Partners based. Uh, He's up in New Canaan, Connecticut. Again, some very strong retail sales numbers suggesting that the uh, consumer is in pretty good shape uh, despite the pandemic. Well, Texas and many other parts of the Midwest are experiencing unprecedented blackouts uh, due in very large part to just some brutal winter weather that has been just pounding that region of the country for days here. Let's get the latest on what is going on and what the future might hold. We do that with Liam Denning. He's the energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Liam, thanks so much for joining us here. I know we're just a few days into this uh, real crisis in Texas and other states what do we know as to what happened? It just seems like it was a what you know what some people are calling a perfect storm. Yeah, I mean th- these events have happened in the past in Texas, not to this magnitude, but um, you know, 2011, all back all the way back to 1989, which is the first time um, uh, we we saw uh, blackouts in that market or controlled blackouts to deal with a, a spike in demand. Um, you know the. the the complex answer will take a few months to come out, but the simple answer is that there was a spike in demand due to cold weather, and also a lot of plants went offline again because of cold weather. The system in the power system in Texas is geared mainly mm. to dealing with big increases in demand during the summer for air conditioning. Um, it's not really built for uh, for dealing with a, a surge in demand in 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 winter, and, and that's the problem here. So my my first thought was, um, the grid is garbage. Is that right, <laughs> or do they have a, a a really great grid in Texas? Uh, it's not so much a question that the that the grid is garbage. You know what we've seen is is really a bunch of um, a bunch of plants go offline. And that's due to several factors. So, you know, we saw over the weekend uh, and um, in the last couple of days, um, you know, people blaming wind turbines because they they, they stopped turning because of a, a build-up of ice. That's true to some degree, but actually the wind turbines are a pretty small part of it. We, all, we also saw the much bigger part was uh, with gas plants shutting down. And that was due to a range of factors um, partly because gas was being diverted to heating people's homes, so there simply wasn't fuel available, um, but also plants just not being built for this weather. So you see uh, valves freeze up, gauges freeze up. Even a nuclear plant shut down, right? Yeah, I, I saw a report of, of, of one nuclear reactor um, shutting down temporarily. I wasn't entirely sure what happened there. Um, but uh, But, you know, these thermal plants rely on... Uh, water for cooling, so there may be an issue there if, if stuff's freezing up. So it's not so much that the grid is bad; it's it's that the 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 infrastructure isn't built to um, to, to take on this kind of event. I mean, if you want to think about it this way, it's kind of an insurance problem, right? 
you have these events that happen from time to time and it costs money to build things in a way that they can deal with it. And the fact is that the Texan market, you know, it's deregulated. The, the focus is much more on keeping prices low. And so when a plant operator is making that decision, well, do I invest X to deal with an event that might happen once every 10 or 20 years, or do I keep my costs down? Most of the time they're going to say, I'll keep my costs down. So Liam, you know, some arguments are being raised that climate change has to be addressed here as it relates to Texas's mm. and others' uh, power grids, i.e. climate change producing, I guess, greater swings uh, in weather. So maybe hotter summers, colder winters, and mm. that has to be incorporated into the design and maintenance of these systems. Is that getting any traction in places like Texas? Um, I'm sure it will gain traction among some. I'm not sure it's gaining much traction in the governor's office as yet. Um, but it's it's unignorable. I mean, look, Texas never likes to um, to be compared to California, but in this respect, they're united. You know, California faces growing problems with wildfires due to climate change, and we've seen the havoc it's wreaked on the grid there. Texas is going to face extreme temperature variations as well. And it's not just the power system that isn't built for it. You know, mm. there's a lot of big houses in Texas that, that take a lot of heating and cooling. They aren't well in, insulated. You know, there's, there's an urban planning issue here as well. And, you know, it's, it's tempting to, to go on TV and say, well, it's all the wind turbines fault. But, um, you know, ideology is a good but way of, of getting people's blood boiling, but it won't actually keep them warm. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'd say I'm a huge fan of uh, Texas. I visit Dallas as often as I can, and I just love how big everything is, from the houses to the trucks. The only thing not big is the gas bill when I when I fill up my <laughs> gigantic F-350 dually there. Well, I want to ask you, throw you a bit of a curveball, Liam. Since we got you, and I'm looking through all your opinion columns, I just, re- uh, just recently watched this Bill Gates documentary on Netflix, I'm sure. Well, I hope we've all seen it because it's really good. Um, what do you think about nuclear? I mean, it seems like uh, everyone just passes it over right away, but the world's smartest man has figured out a way to make it safe. Well, here's the issue with nuclear. So there is a safety issue and there's a public perception issue. But I think the bigger problem with nuclear is really a capital markets issue, right? If you, if you think about it, if you're going to build a nuclear plant, it's going to cost you, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten billion dollars to build this thing. It's probably going to take you the best part of a decade to build it. For that kind of investment to pencil out, you've got to be really certain about what's going to be happening with uh, power prices and demand over the next 40 or 50 years. And what we've seen in the past several decades is in deregulated electricity markets. Nuclear has become less popular because it costs a lot of money and you have to take a big upfront risk on, uh, you know, expo- expo- risk exposure to, to prices and demand. And that's why a lot of these plants, you know, don't get built, particularly because they also tend to run over budget, take longer to build. That's why we tend to see more nuclear plants being built in, in regulated markets, uh, uh, you know, like like China and that sort of thing. So, you know, nuclear is 
fine and it has real advantages in terms of dealing with um, addressing issues of climate change. The one issue it cannot deal with or has struggled to deal with is it costs a lot of money and it represents a lot of risk. Liam Denning, thank you so much. Uh, We appreciate your thoughts, as always, on this crazy, crazy story in uh, Texas and other parts of the Midwest. Hopefully, they get some relief soon. Liam Denning, energy, mining, and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read Liam's work and that of our Bloomberg Opinion columnists. They do great, great work. Bloomberg.com slash opinion or O-P-I-N, go on the turn why I recommend you take a look at that work. Again, Liam Denning on the energy business and what is going on down in Texas with those rolling blackouts that news reports suggest will go on at least for another couple of days. Well, to me, I guess one of the more interesting developments in the U.S. economy over the last decade or so is the growth of the gig economy. Think Uber and Lyft, and the, and the real key to the economic model for a gig company like Uber and Lyft is that their drivers, in this case, are deemed contractors and not employees, and that has a lot of implications. Let's dig down deep on that issue. We can do that with Josh Idelson, labor reporter for Bloomberg News. So, Josh, you know, in California, where I know you're based, California voted. The voters actually voted to classify Uber and Lyft drivers as contractors. What are the implications of that? The implications of that vote substantively and politically have been huge. There was a $200 million ballot measure campaign by gig companies in California, which secured passage of Prop 22, this measure making workers under California law contractors and not employees if they're doing app-based driving, whether it's for delivery or passengers. That means people are excluded from a whole range of protections that California employment law provides employees, though they are provided an alternate suite of more circumscribed benefits. US why? Law- why? Why would Ca- I mean, I think of California as a super progressive state. And um, whenever I well, I take Ubers a lot or I did before the, the lockdown, whenever I take an Uber, I think this poor guy is working like 16 hours a day just to pay off his lease. Um, why would such progressive people vote to um, make this guy's life so much harder? Well, some of the polling suggests that some of the people who voted for Prop 22 thought that it would ensure benefits for workers that they might otherwise not have. Certainly part of the messaging from the companies, both in advertising and in messages they put in their own apps, suggested that workers would not have these jobs at all if the ballot measure didn't pass. This is something that has been part of this debate for a long time, is these companies saying their business model and therefore their workers' livelihoods depend on treating workers as contractors. Meanwhile, you have some workers and advocates and lawmakers who say, this is just a new modern version of an argument that companies have always made, that they need an exception, they shouldn't have to pay people the same minimum amount for each hour of their work that others do. And the fact that it happens during an app doesn't change the essential nature of that debate. So... How does the proposed $15 minimum wage, does it does that impact you know California or just gig economy workers in general? Well, minimum wage is a great example. The federal minimum wage 
like the federal labor rights in the National Labor Relations Act, applies to employees, not to contractors. So under federal law, like under state law, if you're considered a contractor, you are excluded from many of the protections that the New Deal enshrined for workers. Now, what makes this particularly complicated is someone can be an employee under one law and not under another. So while the companies have one Prop 22 in California, that doesn't in and of itself protect them from being found under federal law to be employers that are under the, on the hook for what they haven't done under federal law. Josh, so many, uh, so many Americans work now in the gig economy, not just in California, but across the country. And I'm just wondering if you have any insight as to how they are being supported by the stimulus measures that we, you know, that we got under President Trump that we're expecting under President Biden. Do, are, are, there, are there any um, exceptions made to try and help these gig workers who are hard to kind of value? Well, one of the things that was passed last year was the PUA, a separate unemployment system for people that were not considered employees. And there was disagreement among some advocates about whether gig workers should be accept or accepting that program or pushing to get full unemployment benefits as employees, as some agencies, such as in New York, have concluded some of these gig workers are entitled to because they found they actually are employees and not contractors. Josh, talk to us about contractors, because there's a lot of companies use contract employees to kind of, you know, on different demand, seasonality, things like that. What's the impact of gig workers on those folks? So what gets talked about as the gig economy now, in some ways, is a face of something that has existed for many, many decades in the United States. As I talk about in Business Week, even in the early years of the National Labor Relations Act, in the 1940s, you had William Randolph Hearst Publishing Company going to the Supreme Court arguing that its newsies were not employees. And while they lost at the Supreme Court, the company then ultimately was vindicated in that Congress passed a law specifically excluding independent contractors. So you've had these controversies about so-called misclassification of workers as contractors in industries from mm. construction to education to mixed martial arts. <laughs> the gig economy in right. tech is a modern face of that. Modern face of that. Hey, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Josh Idelson, Bloomberg labor reporter, uh, joining us. You can read Josh's story. It's featured in the new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com. But clearly, that is a key, key issue for the gig economy, employees or contractors. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 